0: Book 3. Chapter 1. I came to Carthage where a cauldron of illicit loves leapt and boiled about me. I was not yet in love, but I was in love with love, and from the very depth of my need hated myself for not more keenly feeling the need. I sought some object to love, since I was thus in love with loving, and I hated security and a life with no snares for my feet. For within I was hungry, all for the want of that spiritual food which is thyself, my God yet though I was hungry for want of it, I did not hunger for it. I had no desire whatever for incorruptible food, not because I had it in abundance, but the emptier I was, the more I hated the thought of it. Because of all this my soul was sick, and broke out in sores, whose itch I agonized to scratch with the rub of carnal things. Carnal, yet if there were no soul in them, they would not be objects of love. My longing then was to love and to be loved, but most when I obtained the enjoyment of the body of the person who loved me. Thus I polluted the stream of friendship with the filth of unclean desire, and sullied its limpidity with the hell of lust. And vile and unclean as I was, so great was my vanity that I was bent upon passing for clean and courtly. And I did fall in love, simply from wanting to. O my God, my mercy, with how much bitterness didst thou in thy goodness sprinkle the delights of that time. I was loved, and our love came to the bond of consummation. I wore my chains with bliss, but with torment too for I was scourged with the red-hot rods of jealousy, with suspicions and fears and tempers and quarrels. Chapter 2 I developed a passion for stage plays, with the mirror they held up to my own miseries and the fuel they poured on my flame. How is it that a man wants to be made sad by the sight of tragic sufferings that he could not bear in his own person? Yet the spectator does want to feel sorrow, and it is actually his feeling of sorrow that he enjoys. Surely this is the most wretched lunacy, For the more a man feels such sufferings in himself, the more he is moved by the sight of them on the stage. Now when a man suffers himself, it is called misery. When he suffers in the suffering of another, it is called pity. But how can the unreal sufferings of the stage possibly move pity? The spectator is not moved to aid the sufferer, but merely to be sorry for him. And the more the author of these fictions makes the audience grieve, the better they like him. If the tragic sorrows of the characters, whether historical or entirely fictitious, be so poorly represented that the spectator is not moved to tears, he leaves the theater unsatisfied and full of complaints. If he is moved to tears, he stays to the end, fascinated and reveling in it. So that tears and sorrow, it would seem, are things to be sought. Yet surely every man prefers to be joyful. May it be that whereas no one wants to be miserable, there is real pleasure in pitying others, and we love their sorrows because without them we should have nothing to pity. All this takes its rise in that stream of friendship of which we have been speaking. But where does that stream go to? What is the direction of its flow? Why must it run into, and lose itself in, that torrent of pitch which boils out in great waves of vile lust? For by some inclination in itself, friendship is twisted and torn away from its heavenly cleanness. Is compassion, feeling for others, therefore to be shunned? By no means. The sorrows of others must move our love. But beware of uncleanness, O my soul, under the protection of my God, the God of our fathers, who is to be praised and exalted above all forever. Beware of uncleanness. I can still feel for others. But in those days when I went to the theatres, I was glad with lovers when they sinfully enjoyed each other, although the whole thing was merely fictitious and part of a stage play, and when they lost each other I was sad for them. But either way I enjoyed the play but today I have more pity for the sinner getting enjoyment from his sin than when he suffers torment from the loss of pleasure which is ultimately destructive and the loss of happiness which is only misery. This clearly is the truer compassion, but the sorrow I feel for him gives me no pleasure. Although he that grieves with the grief-stricken is to be commended for his work of charity, yet the man who is fraternally compassionate would prefer to find nothing in others to need his compassion. Only in the impossible event of goodwill being malevolent could a man who is truly and sincerely filled with pity desire that there should be miserable people for him to pity. There is a kind of compassionate sorrow that is good, but there is no kind that we should rejoice to feel. And thus do you act, Lord God, for you love souls with a greater and deeper purity than we can, and are more incorruptibly compassionate because no sorrow can reach to wound you, and who is sufficient for these things? But to return to that time, In my wretchedness I loved to be made sad and sought for things to be sad about. And in the misery of others, though fictitious and only on the stage, the more my tears were set to flowing, the more pleasure did I get from the drama and the more powerfully did it hold me. There I was, a wretched sheep strayed from your fold and impatient of the shepherd, what wonder that I became infected with a foul disease. That is why I love those sorrows, not that I wanted them to bite too deep, for I had no wish to suffer the sorrows I loved to look upon, but simply to scratch the surface of my heart as I saw them on the stage. Yet, as if they had been fingernails, their scratching was followed by swelling and inflammation and sores with pus flowing. Such was my life. But was that a life, my God? Chapter 3 Yet from afar off your faithful mercy hovered over me. I wasted myself in baseness, pursuing a sacrilegious curiosity, which led me, once I had deserted you, to the uttermost treason and the deceiving service of devils, to whom I made offering of my vile deeds. And in all this you chastised me with your scourges for I dared so far one day within the walls of your church and during the very celebration of your mysteries to desire and carry out an act worthy of the fruits of death. For this you lashed me with the heaviest punishments, yet the punishments were as nothing to the guilt of my act, O my God, my exceeding great mercy, my refuge from the fierce dangers among which I wandered in my arrogance, going ever further from you, loving my way and not your ways, in love with my runaway liberty. Those of my occupations at that time which were held as reputable were directed towards the study of the law, in which I meant to excel, and the less honest I was, the more famous I should be. The very limit of human blindness is to glory in being blind. By this time I was a leader in the school of rhetoric, and I enjoyed this high station, and was arrogant and swollen with importance. Though you know, O Lord, that I was far quieter in my behavior, and had no share in the riotousness of the Eversores, the Overturners, for this blackardly diabolical name they wore as the very badge of sophistication. Yet I was much in their company, and much ashamed of the sense of shame that kept me from being like them. I was with them and I did for the most part enjoy their companionship, though I abominated the acts that were their specialty, as when they made a butt of some hapless newcomer, assailing him with really cruel mockery for no reason whatever save the malicious pleasure they got from it. There was something very like the action of devils in their behavior. They were rightly called overturners, since they had themselves been first overturned and perverted, tricked by those same devils who were secretly mocking them in the very acts by which they amused themselves in mocking and making fools of others. Chapter 4 With these men as companions of my immaturity, I was studying the books of eloquence, for in eloquence it was my ambition to shine, all from a damnable vaingloriousness and for the satisfaction of human vanity. Following the normal order of study, I had come to a book of one Cicero, whose tongue practically everyone admires, though not his heart. That particular book is called Hortensius, and contains an exhortation to philosophy. Quite definitely it changed the direction of my mind, altered my prayers to you, O Lord, and gave me a new purpose and ambition. Suddenly all the vanity I had hoped in I saw as worthless, and with an incredible intensity of desire I longed after immortal wisdom. I had begun that journey upwards by which I was to return to you. My father was now dead two years, I was eighteen and was receiving money from my mother for the continuance of my study of eloquence. But I used that book not for the sharpening of my tongue. What won me in it was what it said, not the excellence of its phrasing. How did I then burn, my God, how did I burn to wing upwards from earthly delights to you? But I had no notion what you were to do with me, for with you is wisdom. Now love of wisdom is what is meant by the Greek word philosophy, and it was to philosophy that that book set me so ardently. There are those who seduce men's minds by philosophy, coloring and covering their errors with its great and fine and honorable name. Almost all who in Cicero's own time and earlier had been of that sort are listed in his book and shown for what they are. Indeed, it illustrates the wholesome advice given by the Spirit through your good and loving servant, Beware lest any man cheat you by philosophy and vain deceits, according to the tradition of men, according to the elements of the world, and not according to Christ, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead corporeally. At that time you know, O light of my heart, those writings of the apostles were not yet known to me. But the one thing that delighted me in Cicero's exhortation was that I should love, and seek, and win, and hold, and embrace, not this or that philosophical school, but wisdom itself, whatever it might be. The book excited and inflamed me. In my ardor, the only thing I found lacking was that the name of Christ was not there. For with my mother's milk, my infant heart had drunk in and still held deep down in it that name according to your mercy, O Lord, the name of your Son, my Saviour and whatever lacked that name, no matter how learned and excellently written and true, could not win me wholly. Chapter 5 So I resolved to make some study of the sacred scriptures and find what kind of books they were. But what I came upon was something not grasped by the proud, not revealed either to children, something utterly humble in the hearing but sublime in the doing, and shrouded deep in mystery. And I was not of the nature to enter into it or bend my neck to follow it, When I first read those scriptures, I did not feel in the least what I have just said. They seemed to me unworthy to be compared with the majesty of Cicero. My conceit was repelled by their simplicity, and I had not the mind to penetrate into their depths. They were indeed of a nature to grow in your little ones, but I could not bear to be a little one. I was only swollen with pride, but to myself I seemed a very big man. Chapter 6 I fell in with a sect of men, the Manichaeans, talking high-sounding nonsense, carnal and wordy men. The snares of the devil were in their mouths to trap souls with an arrangement of the syllables of the names of God the Father and of the Lord Jesus Christ and of the paraclete, the Holy Ghost, our Comforter. These names were always on their lips, but only as sounds and tongue noises, for their heart was empty of the true meaning. They cried out, Truth, truth, they were forever uttering the word to me, but the thing was nowhere in them. Indeed, they spoke falsehood not only of you, who are truly truth, but also of the elements of this world, your creatures. Concerning these I ought to have passed beyond even the philosophers who spoke truly, for love of you, O my supreme and good Father, beauty of all things wonderful. O truth, truth, how inwardly did the very marrow of my soul pant for you, when time and again I heard them sound your name. But it was all words, words spoken, words written in many huge tomes. In these dishes, while I hungered for you, they served me up the sun and the moon, beautiful works of yours, but works of yours all the same, and not yourself, not even your mightiest works. For your spiritual creation is greater than these material things, brilliantly as they shine in the sky. Yet not even for the noblest of your works did I hunger and thirst, but for yourself, the truth, with whom there is no change nor shadow of alteration. And still in those poor dishes they set before me splendid fantasies. It would indeed have been better to love the sun, which is at least true to the eyes, than those falsities which deceive the mind through the eyes. All the same I swallowed them, because I thought that they were yourself, yet I did not swallow them with much appetite, because you did not taste in my mouth as you are. For, after all, you were not those empty falsehoods, and I was not nourished by them, but utterly dried up. Food in dreams is exactly like real food, yet what we eat in our dreams does not nourish, for we are dreaming. But those fantasies of theirs were not in any way like you, as you have since spoken to me, for they were material images, false shows of bodies. The true bodies that we see with our bodily vision, whether in the sky or on the earth, are truer than they, we see them as beasts and birds do, and they are more certain than our images of them. And again these images have more reality than the grandiose infinite bodies we deduce from them, which have no being at all. On such emptiness did I then feed, and was not fed. But you, God of my love, for whom I long that I may find strength, are not those bodies which we see, though it is in the heavens that we see them. Nor are you those bodies which we do not see in the heavens, because you have created them too, nor do you hold them among your mightiest works. How far then is the reality of you from those empty imaginings of mine, imaginings of bodies which had no being whatever? The images of those bodies which do have being are more certain than they, and the bodies themselves more certain than the images. Yet even these you are not. You are not even the soul which is the life of bodies, and therefore obviously better and more certain than the bodies it vivifies. But you are the life of souls, the life of lives, livingness itself, and you shall not change, O life of my soul. Where then were you and how far from me? I had indeed straggled far from you, not even being allowed to eat the husks of the swine whom I was feeding with husks. How much better were the sheer fables of the poets and literary men than all the traps that Manis set for souls. Verses and poems and media flying were less harmful than the five elements, variously transformed in strife with the five dens of darkness, which have no being whatsoever, and are death to the soul that believes them. It is possible to get real food for the mind out of verses and poems, and though I sang of Medea flying, I did not think it was true and when I heard it sung I did not believe it. But these fantasies of the Manichees I did believe. Alas, by what stages was I brought down to the deepest depths of the pit, giving myself needless labor and turmoil of spirit for want of the truth? In that I sought you, my God, to you I confess it, for you had pity on me even when I had not yet confessed, in that I sought you not according to the understanding of the mind by which you have set us above the beasts, but according to the sense of the flesh. Yet all the time you were more inward than the most inward place of my heart, and loftier than the highest. But I had come upon the woman of Solomon's parable, the shameless woman, knowing nothing, who sits on a seat at the door of her house and says, Eat ye the bread of secrecies willingly, and drink ye stolen waters which are sweet. She seduced me because she found me dwelling externally in the eye of my flesh, and ruminating within myself upon such food as, through the body's eye, the mind had swallowed. Chapter 7 But I did not know that other reality which truly is, and through my own sharpness that I let myself be taken in by fools, who deceived me with such questions as, whence comes evil? And is God bounded by a bodily shape, and has he hair and nails? And are those patriarchs to be esteemed righteous who had many wives at the same time, and slew men, and offered sacrifices of living animals? By all this my ignorance was much troubled, and it seemed to me that I was coming to the truth when I was in fact going away from it. I did not know that evil had no being of its own, and is only an absence of good, so that it simply is not. How indeed should I see this when the sight of my eyes saw no deeper than bodies, and the sight of my soul no deeper than images of bodies? I did not even know that God is a spirit, having no parts extended in length and breadth, to whose being bulk does not belong, for bulk is less in its part than in its whole. And if it be infinite, it is less in the part circumscribed by a certain space than in its infinity, and so could not be holy itself in every place, as a spirit is, as God is. And I was further ignorant what is the principle in us by which we are, and what Scripture meant by saying that we are made to the image of God. Nor did I know that true and inward righteousness which judges not according to custom, but according to the most righteous law of Almighty God. By that law the ways of conduct of different places and times are shaped as is best for those places and times, though the law itself is always and everywhere the same, not different in different places or changing with the ages. By this righteousness Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David and all those others praised by God were righteous, although they are judged not so by ignorant men who apply the tests of their human minds, and measure all the conduct of the human race by the measure of their own custom. They are like a man handling armor and not knowing what piece is meant for what part of the body, and so putting a greave on his head and a helmet on his feet, and complaining that they do not fit. Or as if on a given day on which it was illegal to do business in the afternoon, a man should grumble because he was not allowed to go on selling in the afternoon, though he had been in the morning. Or as if in a given house he should see something handled by one servant, but not allowed to the one who has to pour the wine. Or that something were done behind the stable which is forbidden in the dining room as if, in short, he should be angry because in the one dwelling house and the one family the same things are not allowed to every member of the household and in all parts of the house. Such are those who are scandalized when they hear that something was permitted to righteous men in one age and not permitted in another, and that God gave one man this command, another that, as the difference of the age required, yet both alike served the same righteousness. Just as in one man, and in one day, and in one house, different things are held fitting for different members, and a particular act is lawful now but not lawful an hour hence, and something is allowed or indeed commanded in one corner which is forbidden and punished in another. Does this mean that justice is unstable and changeable? No, but the times over which justice presides are not alike, for they are times. Men, because their life upon earth is short, are unable of their own observation to compare the conditions of past ages and foreign nations which they have not experienced with those which they have experienced. In the matter of one body or day or house, they can readily see what is fitting for this or that member, this or that moment, this or that part of the house or rank in the household. They accept such differences because they fall within their experience, yet remain scandalized at the differences shown in Scripture. But all this I did not know then or realize. It was beating in on me the whole time and I had not eyes to see. Thus when I composed verses I was not free to put any foot where I pleased, but in different places according to the meter I was using, and in one line I could not use the same foot in every position. Nonetheless the art I was practicing, the art of poetry, did not have a different law for different places, but the same law throughout. Yet I failed to see that the justice obeyed by these good and holy men was all the more excellent and admirable, because while it contained all its precepts in one and never varied, yet it did not order and decree all things alike, but to each age what was proper to each. Thus in my blindness I blame those holy patriarchs who not only used things present as God commanded and inspired them, but also foretold the future as God revealed it to them. Chapter 8 In no time or place could it be wrong for a man to love God with his whole heart, and his whole soul, and his whole mind, and his neighbor as himself. Therefore those sins which are against nature, like those of the men of Sodom, are in all times and places to be detested and punished. Even if all nations committed such sins, they should all alike be held guilty by God's law, which did not make men so that they could use each other thus. The friendship which should be between God and us is violated when that nature, whose author he is, is polluted by so perverted a lust. Actions which are against the customs of human societies are to be avoided according to the variety of such customs, so that that which is agreed upon by the custom or decreed by the law of state or people is not to be violated at the mere pleasure, whether of citizen or alien for every part is defective that is not in harmony with the whole. But when God orders something against the custom or covenant of a state, though it never had been done, it must be done. And if it was once done but allowed to lapse, it must be restored. And if it was not a law before, it must be made a law now. In a state it is lawful for the reigning monarch to command something which none had ever commanded before him, and he himself had never commanded before. And obedience in this event is not against the fellowship of that state, Indeed, disobedience would be against the fellowship, for it is the general agreement of all societies of men to obey their kings. How much more, then, may God so act, the ruler of all creation, whose commands are to be obeyed without hesitation? For as among the powers of human society, the greater power has a right to the obedience of the lesser, so God to the obedience of all. In sins where there is a real will to harm another, it may be either by calumny or injury. And whichever of these two it is, the sin is committed either for the sake of revenge, as when one enemy attacks another, or to gain something that another has, as when a bandit sets upon a traveler, or to escape some danger, as when one man is afraid of another, or through envy, as when a man in poverty attacks one more prosperous, or one who has prospered attacks another whom he fears as likely to equal him or hates for having already equaled him, or for mere pleasure in another's suffering, like the spectators at gladiatorial shows or people who are always mocking or deriding their neighbors, These are the main heads of sin, which swarm forth from the lust for holding the first place, or the lust of the eye, or the lust of the senses, or from any one or two of them, or from altogether. By these we live evilly against the three and the seven, the ten-stringed harp, the ten commandments given by you, O God, most high and most gracious. But how are the sins of the first sort against you, who can suffer no corruption? Or how are sins of the second sort against you, who can suffer no harm? You punish the sins men commit against themselves, because though their sin is against you, they are wronging their own souls, and their iniquity gives itself the lie. Either they corrupt and pervert their own nature, which you have created and set in order, by making wrong use of the things you have permitted, or by burning towards a use of things not permitted, which is against nature, or their guilt lies in raging against you in thought and word and kicking against the prick, or else in complete contempt of the existing order of society, they go their own insolent way with private agreements or private feuds according to their personal likes or dislikes. And all this happens, O fountain of life, the only and true creator and ruler of the universe, whenever you are forsaken, and out of pride of the individual, a part is loved as though it were the whole. Therefore by lowly love of you must we return to you, and you cleanse us from evil habit, and you are merciful to the sins of those who confess to you, and you hear the groans of those chained in sin, and you loose us from the fetters we have made for ourselves. All this you do unless we raise against you the arrogance of a sham liberty, and through the greedy desire to have more, at the risk of losing all, love our own private good more than you, who are the common good of all. Chapter 9 But amongst these vices and crimes and countless iniquities are the sins into which men fall, although they are in general on the right way. By those who judge rightly, these sins are blamed according to the rule of perfection, but the persons themselves may still be praised for the hope of a better harvest, as the blade gives hope of the growing corn. And there are some actions again that are very much like sins and yet are not sins, since they neither offend you, our Lord God, nor the bond of society. Thus when certain things are set aside to meet the requirements of life or some given circumstance, and it is not clear whether this is done through a mere liking to hoard, or certain actions are punished by a person in authority for the sake of correcting the wrongdoer, and it is not clear whether he may not have done it through a mere desire to cause pain. Thus many actions that to men seem blameworthy are approved in your sight, And many that are praised by men are condemned by you, O God, all because often the appearance of the act may be quite different from the mind of the doer, or because there is some unrealized element in the situation. But when on a sudden you order something unusual and improbable, even if you had formerly forbidden it, it must obviously be done, though you may conceal the cause of your command for the time, and though it may be against the ordinance of this or that society of men, a society of men is just only if it obeys you. But happy are they who know that it was you who commanded for by those that serve you all things are done either to supply what is needful for the present moment or to foreshadow things to come. Chapter 10 But I knew nothing of all this, and so I derided those your holy servants and prophets, and I gained nothing by mocking them except that I should myself be mocked by you. Gradually and inevitably I was drawn to accept every kind of nonsense, as that a fig weeps when it is plucked and its mother tree sheds tears of sap. But provided the fig had been plucked by another man's sin and not his own, some Manichean saint might eat it, digest it in his stomach, and, groaning and sighing in prayer, breathe out from it angels. Nay, more, he might breathe out certain particles of the Godhead, and these particles of the true and supreme God would have remained in bondage in the fruit unless set free by the teeth and belly of some holy elect one. And I believed, poor wretch, that more mercy was to be shown to the fruits of the earth than to men, for whose use they were created." For if any man, being hungry, and not being a Manichean, should ask for some, I should have held it worthy of the punishment of death to give him even a mouthful. Chapter 11 And you sent your hand from above, and raised my soul out of that depth of darkness, because my mother, your faithful one, wept to you for me more bitterly than mothers weep for the bodily deaths of their children. For by the faith and the spirit which she had from you, she saw me as dead. And you heard her, Lord. You heard her and did not despise her tears when they flowed down and watered the earth against which she pressed her face wherever she prayed. You heard her. What else could have been the cause of that dream by which you so comforted her that she consented to live with me and to eat at the same table in the house, which previously she had refused to do because she shunned and detested the blasphemies of my error? In her dream she saw herself standing on a wooden rule, and a youth all-radiant coming to her cheerful and smiling upon her whereas she was grieving and heavy with her grief. He asked her, not to learn from her, but, as is the way of visions, to teach her, the causes of her sorrow, and the tears she daily shed. She replied that she was mourning for the loss of my soul. He commanded her to be at peace, and told her to observe carefully, and she would see that where she was, there was I also. She looked, and saw me standing alongside her on the same rule. How should she have had this dream unless your ears had heard her heart, O good Omnipotent, you who have such care for each one of us, as if you had care for him alone, and such care for all, as if we were all but one person? And the same must have been the reason for this, too, that when she had told me her vision, and I tried to interpret it to mean that she must not despair of one day being as I was, she answered without an instant's hesitation, No, for it was not said to me where he is you are, but where you are he is. I confess to you, O Lord, that if I remember aright, and I have often spoken of it since, I was more deeply moved by that answer which you gave through my mother, in that she was not disturbed by the false plausibility of my interpretation, and so quickly saw what was to be seen, which I certainly had not seen, until she said it, than by the dream itself, by which the joy that was to come to that holy woman so long after was foretold so long before, for the relief of her present anguish. Nine years were to follow in which I lay tossing in the mud of that deep pit and the darkness of its falsity, though I often tried to rise and only fell the more heavily. All that time this chaste, God-fearing, and sober widow, for such you love, was all the more cheered up with hope. Yet she did not relax her weeping and mourning, she did not cease to pray at every hour and bewail me to you, and her prayers found entry into your sight. But for all that you allowed me still to toss helplessly in that darkness. Chapter 12 One other answer I remember you gave her in that time. Many such things I pass over, because I am hastening on to the matters which I am more urgently pressed to confess to you, and many I have simply forgotten. But you gave her another assurance by the mouth of your priest, a certain bishop reared up in the church and well-grounded in your scriptures. My mother asked him in his kindness to have some discussion with me, to refute my errors, to unteach me what was evil and teach me what was good, for he often did this when he found such people, as it might profit. He refused, rightly as I have realized since, he told her that I was as yet not ripe for teaching, because I was all puffed up with the newness of my heresy, and had already upset a number of insufficiently skilled people with certain questions, as she had in fact told him. But, said he, let him alone. Only pray to the Lord for him. He will himself discover by reading what his error is and how great his impiety. The bishop went on to tell her that his mother had been seduced by the Manichees, so that as a small child he had been given over to them. And he had not only read practically all their books, but had also copied them out, and had found out for himself with no need for anyone to argue or convince him that he must leave the sect. When he had told her this, my mother would not be satisfied but urged him with repeated entreaties and floods of tears to see me and discuss with me. He losing patience said, go your way, as sure as you live it is impossible that the son of these tears should perish. In the conversations we had afterwards, she often said that she had accepted this answer as if it had sounded from heaven.